In this episode of Carolyn Talks, Carolyn talks with Phil Hopkins, founder of The Film Detective. Carolyn and Phil discuss the joys of finding and restoring classic films and streaming, and how the future of film could change for creatives and audience at, audiences after quarantine. speaking to me Phil about the work you're doing with the film detective and the platform and work you're providing for fans of classic films and we are going to get we're going to touch on on quite a few topics but we're going to also we're definitely going to talk about how this pandemic COVID-19 has affected the film industry and also the streaming and home entertainment um, industry and so we'll start so my first question for you is you be, you launched the film detective in 1999, and I wanted to know what was the impetus for you taking on this huge endeavor because there's it's one thing to be a personal collector of films, but then it's another to have what you have like I think you've amassed close to over 3,000 films and counting and deciding to make it a public service for for film fans. And what was the what was the impetus for you beginning this? Well, thank you, and thank you for having me on, uh, Carolyn, and I really appreciate uh, promoting what we do during this difficult time with the pandemic. Uh, thankfully, you know, with what we do in terms of film archiving, we've been able to, through technology, uh, digitize a lot of the films in our collection over the years. So when we first started, it was more of the archive working in the way of exhibition for revival theaters and for home video DVD releases. And over the past five years, all of that has changed so much with streaming, with the different streaming platforms that have content from various um, studios and different producers. And, and we realized that Netflix and Hulu and all the big platforms were going in a different direction when they saw that they could produce their own content. So we really had to come up with a business strategy to engage people that loved old movies, classic movies, lesser-known movies, that we could find a way to kind of distribute those into the streaming world. And that's really kind of the way we transition from the archive to a streaming platform. Mm. And how do you, and so beginning with that, so the, the interesting thing about what you did in 1999, so we, everyone knows about the Criterion Collection, which is kind of similar, but the difference is, is that you focus mainly on, I guess, not only less, you said lesser known films, but films of particular eras, because and I'm not making a comparison, but I just want to like do like the differentiation because the Criterion Collection focuses on films that come out like that came out like pretty recently too. But a lot of your films, I I think I from what I saw, range from the like 1940s, 1950s into the 1970s. And was there a particular reason for that in focusing on those particular types of films from that from those eras? So really, what what happens with our archive is that where we're not one of the major studios in terms of MGM or Paramount. And, and, and Criterion is really known for kind of going after cinephile movies that are kind of top tier, really um, critically acclaimed movies that warrant these sort of amazing presentations. But in between kind of a lot of movies that don't necessarily fit that criteria are a lot of movies that are just not going to be seen 
on a Criterion uh, platform or any kind of presentation. So there's, there's just literally thousands of movies that we would be able to pull from. So we're really an alternative. I mean, I love the Criterion Collection, and I have for many, many years. But we're we you know we fit a certain niche in terms of B movies, lesser known movies, cult movies, and also one thing that we really love is we also specialize in classic TV episodes. So everything from old sort of rare episodes of um, old western episodes, or maybe some crime episodes from the fifties, or game shows. So we really mix up a lot of different things, not just feature films. We work with cartoons and shorts and old serials. So it's it's really a mixed bag, but we really like to think of ourselves as an alternative to other platforms for people that just love to delve deep into the classics. Mm. And did you, when, I guess we could, I guess we could say the video store industry began to die, um, that would have been in like around 2010 with Blockbuster because Blockbuster was the the biggest international video store chain, and I'm from Barbados, so we had we had we had Blockbuster, but we also had kind of like a local um, chain called Chubby's. And the thing the 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 thing with that is that when Blockbuster started to die out, the same thing started to happen in in Barbados, and I guess you could say internationally, like that it was it was kind of like this massive ripple effect. Did you did you think that you were at ahead of the curve with the service that you're providing because films that like films that you do provide through and um, the film detective are films that I would have been able to find at the video stores because I would have been able to find um, like 1940s black and white films um, in the video store and we of course we would have had like we had like Turner classic movies and those kind of things but they were like specific ones that would have come out on VHS and did you think that you were ahead of the curve when that started to happen? I don't necessarily know if we were intentionally ahead of the curve because we've been a provider to pretty much everyone in the home video or the broadcast entertainment space that works with classic movies. So we've been working with Turner for for you know fifteen years with supplying restored movies and helping them find movies that are not necessarily easily obtained by the studios. So we really, you know, kind of fit into that mode of helping people look for movies and find them that are not easily and readily available. And, and in terms of like the home video world, the independent video stores were a wonderful place to find a lot of non-mainstream movies that were lesser known. So just like with um, with with record stores, you know, you would have sort of like your mainstream that had the top 40, but then you had the sort of indies that would specialize in rare music or independent releases. Mm-hmm. And video stores were very similar back then. And when the decline of home video kind of started to happen and streaming took over. We thought that some of the streaming platforms, whether they be Hulu or Netflix, would fill that void, and and they really didn't. They got more into being a production house of their own current contemporary content. So movies that were lesser-known, older movies were kind of kicked to the curb, and it was either, you know, kind of try to find a home video or Blu-ray release, or try to hope that somebody uploaded it to YouTube, and there really wasn't anyone serving that sort of niche or that need. And out of necessity, you know, we really did the platform because there were less places that wanted to take older movies. 
And as you mentioned, like part of, one of your services is finding films for for um, networks such as TCM. Um, could you tell me the process of doing that? Like from deciding, okay, this is the film we're gonna go for, and this is the film we're going to to give to TCM. Like, what's the what's the process of doing that? Because I imagine there's a lot of legal logistics as well as investigative um, work because you have to go and hunt down these films. Basically, like, what's the process for that? Absolutely. So, um, you know, working in archival film, a lot of the studios years ago never really saw the long-term value in a movie once it went through its exhibition cycle. So a good example is, you know, if you looked at some of the studio movies from the 1930s and 1940s, they were exhibited, but they would never really kind of look to have intrinsic long-term value for things like syndication or home video or streaming, they were just moving on to the next title because that was really not something they ever felt that they could monetize. So the films themselves, a lot of which were um, nitrate movies, were either destroyed in fires or they were stored improperly. And over the years, a lot of film collectors would obtain movies out of storage facilities that had closed or they would get them through theaters. So there's this amazing kind of sub-existence um, of film collectors that started probably in the 1960s that would collect movies and they would sell them to other collectors. And that was really the basis for kind of how we fit into the food chain. We've worked, you know, when I, when I started doing this um, 20 years ago, I met a lot of guys who were, you know, collecting movies and they had been working with some smaller networks, like supplying them for late night syndication and different um, packages and things like that. So we amassed a great relationship of a network of film collectors. And then on top of that, we have been working with different archives like the UCLA Film and TV Archive, the Library of Congress, the British Film Institute, who do take great care of films and have uh, amazing um, collections of so many movies that they're sitting on in their archives. And when it comes to finding movies that other people might need to try to get them back into syndication or broadcast or home video, we really just tap into our network. And that's just sort of the luxury of being around for 20 years in this kind of crazy world of film collecting. Mm. And so you have, so you have this process. So what is it? What's the word, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, so, so you have your film. And you've acquired it. And what is the process now for digitally remastering film? Because this is something else that you're doing now too. Because with the um, with how technology is advancing, with um, with re, like, I don't want to say refurbishing, but that's the word that keeps coming up to my head is um, is remastering the films. What is what what has it been like going from one type of technology and moving through? with the advancements that you're having now? Because I imagine it's it's easier now to to clean up the films, as you would say, you know, to make them more um, visually crisp. It's amazing. Technology is our friend. So we we have 
all these challenges, whether it be the film's decomposed or there's issues with finding a missing reel and having to kind of go through the different groups of um, institutions or collectors to find missing material. But the technology is truly amazing. Way back during the days of VHS, you had a film going through a process that was so much different than it is today. With scanning, you can get an amazing resolution and have the film look pretty much as close as it might have looked when it was first exhibited. And that's only because of the new advancements that they've made with digital film scanning and film restoration and enhancements. So, you know, they say never throw anything away. I mean, that's sort of the mantra in what I do is that you never throw anything away because you just don't know how technology is going to enhance itself to allow your lesser material be improved drastically. So we're really thankful that, you know, we're kind of holders. I mean, you know, we're it's it's not a very glamorous, you know, situation in terms of we're not out there Hollywood premieres on the red carpet. We're more of kind of, you know, treasure hunters or Indiana Jones type people looking for these movies all over the world in hopes that we can find an enthusiastic group of people who want to work with us and get them back into circulation and get them restored again. And is there any film in particular that you can remember that was that was extremely challenging to 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 acquire like one that you had that took like a, either an extremely long time to get or it just the process of of going through the digital remastering or and and you know getting it from finding it to to getting it um like broadcast on like a network there's so many instances of that recently uh we did a restoration project with Turner Classic Movies with a movie called It's Love Again, which is a very wonderful screwball comedy uh, musical um, that's just a great movie with Jesse Matthews and Robert Young. And the film itself was with one of my dear friends who's a well-known film producer and very, very great guy who's been collecting a lot of these lesser-known movies by the name of Sam Sherman. And Sam had a 16-millimeter original reduction print of the movie. So, And this is common for Turner when they do come to us and say, we're looking for this title, do you have it? We, we, we get very excited. So we were able to obtain that, and then we were able to go through the restoration process and make it look absolutely beautiful. So when it, was, when it aired on, on TCM, it just looked phenomenal. But that that took a tremendous amount of restoration in terms of audio cleaning the, the soundtrack and removing some dust and debris and scratch removal that we do in very sophisticated software that you can sit there and kind of take things out that don't necessarily look that great and make the picture quality so much better than it would have looked if you didn't have that software. So we're really thankful for that. We're really thankful for technology helping us with these old pictures to get them back looking crisp and nice and clear again. Hmm. And for and for going through this process, um, there I want to I want to switch a little bit to one of the films that you that that you re, were releasing recently, and that was the. Sorry, excuse me. And that was F Fist of Fair Touch of Death. So this is um, a film. 
that starred uh, Ron Van uh, Ron Van Cleef, uh, produced by Terry Levine and directed by Matthew Mallinson. And it's this, uh, I think you called it a Bruce Plotation film. And it's a, ni- it's a 1980 um, Bruce Lee action film. So the reason I'm going to tie this into what we were talking about recently is because this is a film, it's 40, it's a 40th anniversary and you were releasing it um, on VOD and for, and for DVD. And it's a, one of the promotions that you have coming up, especially with regards to what's going on with COVID. And for a film like this, um, everyone like loves like, old martial arts films like I'm a huge martial arts uh, film fan and 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 for a film like this what was the process for acquiring this film in particular because I think it's 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 I don't think it's one that I ever heard of uh, which I which I thought was interesting for me um I no I'm wrong I think I heard of it but I've never watched it and and I think this is interesting because for a lot of the action films from especially a lot of the martial arts action films from the 80s and 90s and sorry 80s and the 70s I found out I think it was like last year end of last year I watched this documentary on Netflix and they were talking and they were talking about how um films those particular films they didn't have like literal translations of what the actors were saying if they were speaking in Mandarin or Cantonese and the English and, and the English translations that we were hearing weren't um weren't the actual translations and it was a gobsmacked i'm like what i felt like to but is there uh when you have a film like fist of uh fair such of death like what was the process for this film in particular the film is really well known as being a very strange frankenstein cobbled together mess of a movie mm-hmm. and i say that with you know all sincerity of a fondness for the movie because it's something that is unlike anything that's ever been made because back in the 70s, Terry Levine, who had a company called Aquarius Releasing, mm-hmm. he was he was a well-known distributor and he had acquired two early um, Bruce Lee movies, one of which was when Bruce Lee was a young kid. And he was seeing a lot of interest in the revival of sort of these fake Bruce Lee exploitation movies where they'd get somebody to be Bruce Lee that really wasn't after he had died. And they were just a cash grab. And being an entrepreneur and being an exploitation film director and distributor, he was able to get Matthew Mallinson to come in with the screenwriter, Ron Harvey, to take all this footage that he had and then create some kind of a storyline around it. And the storyline was really this sort of um, strange event, which was going to be who was going to be the successor to Bruce Lee and Fred Williamson, who was a very well-known actor back then, and Ron Van Cleef, a well-known martial arts uh, expert, were enlisted to be in this sort of fight scene, which took place at Madison Square Garden. So you've got a movie which takes old footage and new footage, and then they came up with a storyline around it, which was really true exploitation sort of brilliant. And they did very well with the movie. It showed in theaters mostly in kind of the um, drive-in circuit or the grindhouse circuit back then. But it was really the end of that. that by 1980, that had pretty much was the, the last time you really saw Bruce Lee exploitation film. So hence the name Bruce Bloitation. The 40th anniversary 
to us was really, you know, this is such a unique film that cobbles together all this footage. And we love that because we, we, we appreciate that the footage itself has value. And then you just have to be creative with how you repurpose it. And he did a great job reimagining it. And I had actually worked with Ron Harvey for a number of years. He owns a stock a photo shop in New York City called the Ever Collection. And whenever I found out he wrote the screenplay to Fist of Fear, Touch of Death, I said, we have to do something because this is such a unique film. And then he got me in touch with Terry Levine and through another relationship with one of his colleagues, Jim Markovic, we were able to get to Ron Van Cleef and Fred Williamson and we told them that we wanted to do this 40th anniversary special edition and thankfully, everyone really appreciated, you know, kind of the effort that went into the movie 40 years ago and signed on for the documentary, which uh, was produced by Daniel Griffith, who's a acclaimed winning uh, documentary filmmaker and has done a lot of Blu-ray and DVD extras over the years. So it all came together really well. It, it was a fun project, and it's a nice um tribute to the exploitation era of the 1970s. Yeah, that era was a pretty fascinating era because it because we had the black exploitation, but it and and um but there it was interesting to to learn that there was an this era called or I guess you could say this trend or genre called the black exploitation where they did where filmmakers were making bank, like making money, making producing these films about Bruce Lee and 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 using actors that looked like him, but they weren't. And it was just like the disrespect. But um, <laughs> but the the thing with this is it's it's kind of it kind of shows you how um, film itself is this 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 tool that people can use for different reasons, whether it can be used for education or for or for keeping memories alive or and or, you know or or teaching. But it's also a way for for people to, as you said, exploit um, certain ideas and certain and and again the memories of people. But it's it's interesting where you have where what you do is a, a part of that because your 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 job is and your passion is keeping the memory of film alive and keeping these films, which um, inspires a lot of the films that we love now. Where were and and you're keeping their you're keeping them a part of of history, right? And and I think that's a very that's a very important thing. And I wanted to ask you in particular because you have these films and you have like you have this film with um Ron Van Cleef who is um who I think was also I could be wrong, who was in a few other martial arts films. But um for for the films that you do decide to to show, I wanted to ask you about in particular films by and starring um black people from like in the 50s and 40s and because i i was searching and i couldn't find any and there were like films like cabin in the sky or or you know those kind of films and what what are your plans are there any plans to include more films by black um creators absolutely in fact um this year during black history month we did a documentary on the african-american film pioneer oscar michaud and there's a tremendous void in the streaming market with early pioneers of black cinema. And not just black exploitation. Black exploitation really has a, a, a great fan base and it crosses over to different generations of 
people. But the early pioneers of um, cinema history don't really get that much exposure, and certainly not in any broadcast or streaming platform. So we're really sort of looking to bring more films like that into the platform. We also have a wonderful um, plan going forward to create our own sort of curated content niche where we actually take urban filmmakers um, and bring them in to talk about some of the films from the past. Mm. Uh, recently, um, the film director, Robert Townsend, um, was kind enough to give us a plug on one of our curated playlists and talked about how vital it is to keep, keep a lot of these films in circulation. And, and it's, it's really difficult because um, Hollywood was not kind to minorities. And it's hard to really explain in the same way it's hard to understand in terms of literature. Do, do we erase these things from history or do we try to contextualize them and explain what was going on? I mean, certainly if you watch Gone with the Wind, there's a, a whole history of Haiti McDaniel, how she was not even allowed to come to the Academy Awards. She had to stand in the back and uh, it was kind of marginalized. But these great actors and actresses that were involved during a time of segregation and oppression, you know, we, we really do want these people to be known and seen in the films. And uh, it's, 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 it's really, we're sensitive to that. And I think the more we try to educate people about how many people were involved with filmmaking that were minorities, whether it be Asian Americans or African Americans, uh, it will help us sort of understand where we've come from with cinema history and how people like Spike Lee um, were able to really appreciate all those years of challenges. And um, it's, it's just, it's fascinating. Right. Um, and you mentioned Oscar Michaud because actually I did look on the site and I, I, I typed in his name and nothing came up. So I, I, it's interesting that you, you mentioned the documentary. So if possible, you can also send me a link afterwards and I would be happy to link that to the to the podcast post um, because I I think it was last September for the African American Film Critics Association what they did they did a, a series of films with Turner Classic movies and one of the films that they did show was Within Our Gates and and but I also on the on the on your side I did find um, in the blog post session it, there was a review about Heidi Ho which um, starred um, Cat Calloway. And so those are films, films like those are films that I may have seen once in my life, like years ago when I was growing up, growing up in Barbados, I, I would have seen it maybe once or twice on Turner Classic Movies and then never again. And now that I'm adult, I'm more interested in watching these old classics, particularly by black, um, by black creatives. And then when you were looking at people like Oscar Michaud and you realize they did the whole where people would be like, if you want it, create your own. And he was literally like, he created his own. He cre he produced and directed and wrote his own, his own films. And it's, it, it's, it, it's even more important to me now to be able to have a service where, you, I can find these old classics and these old, these old that tells a story of Black history in in um in film, right? It's not just on the screen, but also everything about what happens behind the screen. Um, so I'm glad that you're that you that you and your company are doing this because this is we need more access to to these older classics, right? 
and and so I wanted to ask you about this. So you have you you've launched your the Roku app for the film detective, and could you tell me how that app is going to work in um in its own and how it compares to like what we what we would find on like Turner Classic Movies or Amazon and or Hulu, which you also do provide films for. It's it's very similar in the way it's an app that you're able to watch content kind of on demand. Mm-hmm. But the difference with the way we're programming our app is we program it and treat it really like its own network. So by and large, most um, apps tend to just sort of put content up and they don't necessarily do a lot of refresh. Every month we have editorial meetings and we talk about different themes, whether it be sort of um, like a summer theme, which is what we're working on now. We're going to talk about drive-in movie theaters, and that's kind of appropriate now because I don't think we'll be sitting in a movie theater with a bunch of people anytime soon. So every month we go through an editorial cycle and decide, you know, like, who are we going to focus on for star of the month or theme of the month? And we always try to add at least 50 new titles to the platform so it's not just sort of static. And then through our newsletter and through our weekly watch list, we're able to engage our audience in terms of what's coming up, what to look forward to. And the app is available on all streaming platforms. So whether it's on Apple TV or Amazon uh, Fire TV or iOS or Android, or you can even just go to the filmdetective.tv and stream them directly on our website. Um, we're, we're pretty much on all of those app-centric platforms right now. And Roku is great. They're all great. And I think this is really a godsend for, for us because we're able to have like a micro network of our content. And we also license content from other archives that we feature. So I had mentioned um, the British Film Institute. We have a, a whole entire category dedicated to our content partners, one of which is the BFI. So a lot of sort of lesser known British movies that don't get celebrated as much or featured on that. And then we have other categories of other um, licensing partners. So in addition to our 3,000 titles that we circulate, we also have about eight or nine different partners that we pull from. Mm. Okay. And so going from that, so we there's two things I wanted to ask you with regards to that. So a lot of the films that are that is featured by the film detective are mostly like American made. And you, but you've also mentioned you do get films from the British Film Institute. Are there plans to acquire more international films, like say from um, Asia, Southeast Asia, um, the rest of Europe, I guess you could say? Oh yeah, no, definitely. We're, we're, we're looking to have this be an international platform of all things classic on a global basis. And we do have a couple of, relationships with some um, Bollywood movies that we're hoping to bring out this summer. And we love that because, you know, uh, Bollywood is just an amazing collection. We're talking thousands of movies going back, you know, 70, 80 years. And they're great, lavish productions with lots of singing and dancing. And they're beautifully shot. And and also, there's a, a 
an amazing period in Egyptian filmmaking, too, that a lot of people don't really know about. So, yeah, we, we, we really are excited about our new international licensing partners. We have an Italian distributor that we're going to be bringing out a lot of old spaghetti westerns from the 60s and 70s next month, too. So as, as we grow, we're going to continue to sort of pull from a global distribution network. Mm. And and as we were talking about streaming, um, so we had I, we had mentioned at the beginning of this we we talk about um, COVID and how it's affected the industry. And for you, how how has this impacted what you're doing? Because streaming is where it's at right now. And when this is all over, the film I don't I personally don't believe the film industry will be the same. And it, it it's not only with regards to how films are made and behold and the logistics of how they're going to have to go about actually producing and making a films on set and how people are going to interact but it's about how people are going to view and consume the content um before i eat it feels like i'm talking about like 10 15 years ago because this year has felt so long but the part of the, the 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 thing that we've always loved about films is seeing films in cinema and i i'm perfectly fine and happy watching films at home and tv shows at home like i have i have roku i have the rakuten app because i watched a lot of Korean and Asian dramas and films so I watched them through Roku but we have we we, we all know about Amazon and, and Hulu and Netflix and all of these other platforms but what do you what what do you think is going to happen now because you mentioned the driving theaters and that's something back home in Barbados the driving theater still functions and in North America, I have yet to be been to a, a driving theater here in Canada where I live or in the States when I visit and do you think that this is going to create a resurgence of this? I'm calling it distance watching, where you can watch, but in an audience, but distance wise, and not in a, in a theater, but in a drive-through theater. I certainly hope so. I grew up going to the drive-in movie theaters, and a lot of the movies that we now promote 40 years later are movies that I once saw as a kid at those drive-in movie theaters that eventually were closed to make way for Walmarts or parking lots. And, you know, it, it, with, with cable TV and video stores, it was sort of the victim of the real estate. But with COVID and with everything that's happening today, I'm thankful that there's still a handful of these drive-in movie theaters out there. And I, I know that they're going to do very well this summer if we go through what we think we're going to have to go through with the COVID. Um, in terms of streaming, I agree. I went to see Once Upon a Time in Hollywood twice at the theater because it was so immersive. It was just from the soundtrack to the, the, the way they talked about film and the presentation. It was amazing. I can't imagine having not seen that on the big screen. So I think there's going to be a need to have larger screens where you can go and somewhat self-quarantine in your car to still have that experience. And, and certainly the consumption of content is, is increasing. Our streaming hours are way up for the fact that everyone's at home. And that's going to continue. And I think the, the, the value proposition of short-form content is going to continue to increase as um, as time goes on. But I do think that 
eventually, whether it's, you know, in six months or a year or two, we will get back to the theaters. One thing that I was devastated about losing out on was every year I, I'm, a, I'm a guest at the Turner Classic Movies Film Festival. And that, to me, is something I look forward to because I'm able to be with my peers and like-minded fans of classic movies to get jammed into one of many theaters in Hollywood to watch a lot of these movies on the big screen. And that was really uh, heartbreaking to, to miss this year. So I do think that people are going to have to, have to be creative and, and find ways to engage um, without going to the theaters for a while. But I do think we'll hopefully be back there soon. I hope we're back by next year because one of the biggest disappointments for me personally with this was um, I, I've been looking, I'm a huge fan of the Fast and Furious franchise. And I've been looking forward to Fast 9 because I've always loved the character of Han. And when I found out that they were bringing him back for Fast 9, I was ecstatic. And then when I realized, ah, crap, we're not going to have it because that film should have been out. I believe it should have been out now because I think it was going to come out April 21st. I could be wrong. But it would have been out now, and I would have been having a blast seeing it in the cinema. And this one of the films I would have gladly paid like two or three times to go watch again. But everything is going to, it's one of those films that got pushed back to next year. And then- I just think, you know, it, this is just going to, if, if if everyone sticks together and you get through this, we'll be that much better off later to go back to that setting. And if you can find a local drive-in, I mean, it's a great experience. We 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 have a um, great documentary that we're bringing back this summer called "Going Attractions," and it's a documentary about the demise of the drive-in movie theaters. And I think that a lot of younger people that were not alive during the sort of the Renaissance era, um, they're going to get a great kick out of being able to experience this. And I think it's a great opportunity, even if people have properties, you know, in parking lots where they can do kind of a, um, a makeshift drive-in theater where they can get a mobile screen and project movies. I think there's going to be a lot of creative ways of how we get through the summer. Yeah. It's, it's, and it's kind of funny that you mentioned that because um, something that my friends and I always did every summer is my friend, she has a, like, she has a huge white, this huge part of her wall in the, in her backyard that's white and we would project films onto that we'd have a barbecue in the day and then at the, at night we'd watch films uh, on her projector on her projector I'm like even though we can't even do that because I can't go across to her I can't take the bus and go to her because we have to stay home but like you said is like people are gonna have to be like you know it's a necessity is the mother of all is, is the mother of all um, inventions and this is something I think people are gonna have to do you have at home theaters where like people might have to like invite their neighbors to watch from the street, and which will be interesting. But the the thing is, is um talking about how how there's it, there could be a resurgence of um drive-in um, theaters. It's funny that as I mentioned, like we have the Gulf Drive-in Theater back home in Barbados, and I think there are a couple other islands in the Caribbean that do have drive-in theaters. And uh, but in South Korea, um, they're they're actually finding a research uh, people younger people in in particular are attending the drive-through, um, the driving theaters there. And it, it was always popular among the older generations, but now you're getting these young people who are finding and discovering. And I feel kind of old saying this because I'm like, for me, I, it's always been a part of my, of my film watching, um, history, just going through the driving. But for in North America, we're going to have these, I'm still not sure if it's Gen X or, or millennials or whoever, but we're going to have these young people be like, Oh my gosh, you guys used to go to the theater in cars. And now they're going to have this, 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 this new experience for them, which I think is also going to 
create more film fans because there's always something special about watching a film in the theater, but also watching it at a drive-thru. Like back home, what we do is that if there's action season, if there's a scene that you like, there's a tradition where we would haunt cars and, and cheer, and that's how people would show their appreciation. Oh, absolutely. I think that the Instagram culture will have great visuals this summer as they go out in their cars and sort of see these movies at the drive-ins. And, and I do think that, you know, there's still ways. I, mean, I think about that great scene in Cinema Paradiso where the projectionist mm. moves the movie projector and everyone in the town is watching it and on the, on the wall of the building. And I think that, in fact, just recently, a projectionist in Ireland did that, where he took the projector and, 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 and projected it from the side of a building. So I, I think there's going to be creative ways to exhibit, and and I, I do think we'll get through this. I mean, this is just a horrible time for so many people, and we're lucky in so many ways because of the technology that we can have this interview and conduct business, but there's so many people that can, they still have to figure out how to you know, food on the table or, or people in healthcare going to work. So having entertainment is still, I mean, it's always been escapism and a way to get away from, you know, the sort of stress of reality. And um, more than ever, we're going to need some good entertainment. Oh, yeah. But it'll be interesting to see how this influences entertainment going forward. Like the kind of films and scripts that we'll see in probably, what, the next five, ten years are going to be interesting because sci-fi, the sci-fi that we had, up until now has been about this kind of situation. We have um, films like 28 Days Later and we and you have films like, you know, about plays and, and this and TV shows like Walking Dead and those and we are we're, we feel like we're living in those times. So it'll be interesting to see how what's happening now is gonna influence writers and directors and producers and cinematographers and how that's and how they're going to interpret what's happening now in ten or fifteen years. So even that's probably gonna be like a shock for us. <laughs> Oh, absolutely. I think back of the uh, movie uh, I Am Legend, which was based on the Richard Matheson uh, story that was actually made earlier with Vincent Price as a movie called The Last Man on Earth. Right. And there's so many, you know, epidemic-type scenarios, uh, Panic in the Streets. There's so many films over the years that have kind of projected this type of scenario, and now we're living through it. So you you're right. You know what? What's going to be the storyline when we get through this? In terms of what are we going to be watching? In terms of the next futuristic or science fiction sort of phase of the next reality? Yeah, it's going to be a wild time. The future is. Yeah, I don't think it's anything we can predict. <laughs> I mean, if you were to ask me 20 years ago when we first started getting into transferring old movies to actually, you know, make a living from, it would be watching movies on a little device called an iPhone, you know, and it would just seem so ludicrous and strange that you would say, like, who would want to watch something on a tiny little screen? It just, uh, it seems so counterintuitive, but look at, you know, how many people do that today. Yeah, it's funny that you mentioned that because um, last time I was watching um, this Instagram live with two friends of mine, um, Valerie Complex and Yatiri, um Madaki, who's an actress, and one of the films I mentioned during the the live stream was um, Existence, 
And that film has always bothered me because it seemed, it's one of those films, to me it's like Children of Men, where it's one of the most prescient films I've ever seen. And like um, I, I Am Legend or The Last Man on Earth. And the, the reason that existence has always bothered me is there's a scene where the guy is, he's saying there's going to be people walking on the streets and they're all going to look insane. And we're all going to think they're crazy because they're talking to these devices in, this, in their ears. And that film knocked me for a loop because I was like what he's saying is perfectly plausible and then what like well five seven years later we had a bluetooth invention we had because assistant right. I think in 1997 and then and then with the in with the with the um invention of bluetooth and then you have bluetooth earpieces and I, I don't remember when I first saw the first bluetooth earpiece that film came into my mind with a rush I was like oh my god <laughs> so so then to see films like um the last man on earth and then to be living in a situation now with COVID-19 and we're kind of and I'm always thinking like I swear to God I hope that what happens in films like Trojan of Men and uh, Snowpiercer is, is they're not as pressing as I feel they're I, I hope they're not as um you know as predictive yeah no it's true and, and, and you look at the sort of the themes in a lot of movies you know the sort of apocalyptic theme, even in Planet of the Apes, the original Planet of the Apes, that intense scene when Charleston Heston is on the beach and he, he's walking through the sand and he sees the Statue of Liberty, you know, half buried in the sand. I mean, that's just is such an amazing moving scene to make you to make a provocative statement and, and say, hey, this is a warning. You know, pay attention to history. Read books. Read George Orwell. You know, make sure that we don't repeat history. Movies in literature, they're meant not just to entertain us, they're meant to kind of warn us so we don't make these mistakes. Yeah, well, we had Terminator and and, and Judgment Day, and look, we see, we saw how they're still making robots and that an AI that can think for themselves. I'm like, you know what? Did no one watch Judgment Day? Has no one watched Black Mirror? Is, is no one paying attention? But human beings... There's no doubt. We, we don't seem to be listening. We don't seem to be listening, and, and we always wait until the very last one. We say, oh, crap, we were told about this, but it's too late now. Um, so, yeah, again, it'll be interesting to see what happens. And as a fan of film, I am, I'm looking forward to see what creatives make. But as as a person, I'm kind of terrified of what the future holds, too. But um, at least we'll have films. Um, we'll, have, we'll have the film detective and... and to keep us entertained and we'll have streaming platforms and classic films and and to 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 keep our minds off because basically that's all I've been doing, watching T V. <laughs> yeah, it's a good problem to have during the COVID outbreak and have uh, a lot of uh focus in terms of making sure that we keep our movies refreshed, keep keeping our editorial calendar fresh and just trying to keep positive, you know, in terms of the outlook. Because I do think we'll get beyond this, but it, it's not going to happen overnight. And I, I, I really think it's just important to, to look at history and, and, and understand it. I mean, this whole thing that's happening right now, it, this is not the first time this has happened. So, I mean, and to not get facts in terms of the news and, you know, be telling people that this is something that's going to go away or it's a hoax or things like that. That's just scary talk. And there's so much we can learn from the past. So we don't make those mistakes again. That's kind of the lesson in life is to learn and, and, and not repeat things. Yeah. Um, agreed. Well, we, film is there for entertainment, but as I mentioned earlier, it's there for education and 
is hopefully we can all we we take the lessons from the films that we've seen and apply it and not make the same mistakes. But again, thank you so much for speaking with me, Phil. Um, Phil, it was great to talk to you, and um, I can't. I look forward to see what other um, projects you launch. I'm I'm looking forward to watching. Um, was it fist? affair because <laughs> that one is fist affair and touch of that that one seems that that seems like it's going to be a, a, a fun watch so i can't wait to well we're really we're really looking forward to that uh coming out and thank you so much stay safe